We're working through the Psalms of Ascent this summer. Uh, these Psalms we call in a playlist for pilgrimage, understanding that our life is best understood as a, a sacred pilgrimage as we're moving down a path towards God himself, the God who is shalom and intends to bring shalom, universal harmony and flourishing. That, that is where we're headed, and he's given us these songs to sing so that everything we experience along the way we might understand as part of our pilgrimage. And so this morning in Psalm 124, entitled this, The Persecuted Pilgrim for the Sermon, but uh, let's hear Psalm 124. We just sang the metrical setting of it, so a sort of updated rhyming version, but here it is uh, in a little more literal English translation. Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's pray briefly. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would use the words of the psalmist here as we sing them and reflect upon them and consider how they might apply to our place in this journey of faith, to our day, our time, our city. Would you speak a fresh word to us through this psalm? Help us to understand how important it is to take your words on our lips and into our hearts that we might be transformed. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when Brian and I, we went to the same seminary. When I, Brian and I went to seminary, and we've also been here church planting uh, together in the church, this church planting network and movement in New York City uh, for going, cl getting close now to a couple decades, all of that. Uh, one of the things you read a lot of is what's called church growth literature. It seems like leaders in America, especially in the church, are really obsessed with making their churches grow, you know? Uh, and by that, they usually mean numerically, to get bigger churches. They've done all sorts of things. Maybe a member like, I, I just was making a joke calling it Boomer Church, but a while back there was like this big seeker-sensitive movement and the way to get your church really big was to get rid of all the signs of Christianity and put coffee in the foyer and like make it feel like a Starbucks and kind of like a movie theater and have rock and music and all that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, very light on any of the Christianity. Uh, here, one of the recently, then uh, now, frankly, a little bit infamous church, but when they came here, man, they had some swagger and they grew so quick. Uh, and part of what they were doing was renting out the Hotel Gansevoort's pool top to baptize people on the top of the Hotel Gansevoort or, or some famous people they baptized in NBA players' bathtubs and would let uh, stories be leaked to the press about this. And they grew quickly, really, really cool. And so I thought we'd start this morning by looking at one of the eras in the church history, in church history, in which the church did grow exponentially. It was a tiny, tiny little sect within Judaism of a few dozen followers, maybe right after Jesus' death and resurrection, a couple hundred. And then within a few hundred years, Christianity was so popular and church was so well-loved and well-liked that voluntarily the Roman empire basically became Christian. 
How did this happen? What was God's strategy for growing his church in the midst of all that they were experiencing? Well, in one word, one short word, it is persecution. Persecution was how the church grew. You see it right there in the book of Acts. Go read it. Right at the beginning, people are rejecting Jesus' followers, finding them to be strange and even dangerous, and they're putting them to death. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half of our New Testament himself, was known as Saul, and it shows him at the very beginning there, going from house to house, dragging men, women, and children out to have them killed, standing over while they're stoned, and people put their coats at his feet because he was approving of it. And he said he went around breathing murderous threats against the church wherever it existed. And this just continued to the highest halls of power. From AD 30 to the year AD 311, 54 different emperors ruled the empire, and at least a dozen of them, on record, made formal and official persecution against Christians. I'll name a few. Claudius, in the years 41 through 54, he exiled all these Jewish followers who were following someone called Crestus, was how they wrote it in, uh, in their language. Uh, he expelled them all from Rome for disturbing the peace. And then about a decade later, one of the most infamous of all, Nero himself, who was definitely a psychopath, killed his mom and his pregnant wife and lots of other people. There was a fire in Rome that did a lot of damage, and he pinned blame for it on the Christian city's small Christian community. And he began as, you know, fire with fire. He started burning them alive everywhere. It's said even that he put bodies up as torches on fire for some of his own parties that he would hold. Peter and Paul themselves were said to have been martyred under Nero. Then there was Domitian in the 80s through 90s. He enjoyed, this is just random anecdotes, fun. He enjoyed catching flies and stabbing them with a pin. Nice guy. He liked to watch gladiatorial fights between women and what they called, what we would call, yeah, I I just won't say. (laughs) He liked to see weird fights between people. He was an emperor uh, and he had himself officially titled for the first time as God the Lord. He insisted that people uh, call him with titles of greatness like the Lord of the earth, invincible, holy, and thou alone. When he ordered people to give them honors, the Christians and some of the Jewish people would have nothing to do with it, and so he had them all killed. He may be known as the beast in our book of Revelation. And it goes on and on. Names you may have heard, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, Septimius Severus, Valerian, and then finally the last greatest one, Diocletian. He instituted an official empire-wide persecution. One uh, historian says it was the first time in almost 50 years that an emperor had taken the trouble to do this. And yet, as never before, it seemed like this great persecution was motivated by the total extinction of Christianity. In other words, he was going hard. He wanted to eradicate it from the earth. Now, after uh, some years, he got sick. And then the people that followed him, the the emperors that succeeded him, uh, decided this was a little intense. And they let the edict go. And then in 311... Uh, 313, there was the Edict of Milan under Constantine, and this was the first time that Rome officially had a policy of legal toleration of Christians, okay? And then it would go on as they would be free now to go out and evangelize and serve and to slowly grow into the state's majority religion. Now, I don't mean to joke that this was God's doing, this was God's strategy, but I do want you to see that what it means for people when you find yourself a person of faith, 
and you find yourself in an ecosystem or a sort of climate in which it's not popular. That the point here is that you are going to be able to find God, whatever we mean by this, and we'll explore this together, siding with his people, coming to your side, siding you, siding with you to help you in persecution, in frustration. And this is historically how the church has grown. The church has grown when it is persecuted. It's been said by many historians and now students like me that the blood of the martyrs seems to be the seed of the church. This is how God makes them grow. And he made them grow numerically, yes. As people saw their faith and their loyalty and their self-giving and their eyes on something, a prize deeper and wider than the world. But also to grow them up. Not just to grow numerically, but to grow them. To mature the church. To take them from people who do normal things like have resentments and envy and anger, uh, petty jealousies and enemies, and turn them into people pilgriming toward shalom, which we translate peace. To make us people that are full of shalom and abundant life, to grow us up into the image of Jesus himself. This is what God uses suffering to do if we will let him, to grow up, to grow the church. I mean, Jesus told us this in his most famous sermon at the end of the Beatitudes. The last Beatitude, the last blessed is this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When that happens, you should rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven because they did the same thing to the prophets who were before you. Don't ever forget that you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? See, the life of faith is a pilgrimage, and it is a pilgrimage toward shalom, toward peace, harmony, enemies reconciled. But we are not there yet. We are not there yet. It's a path. It's a pilgrimage. And so on the way, yes, we can't escape it. We are going to experience suffering, rejection, confusion, hardship, misunderstanding, mocking, sometimes oppression, and all-out persecution. They want you to know this. On your pilgrimage of life, the psalmists do. That's why it has all Israel say. It says, take this on your lips. You're, you're walking up the path to Jerusalem. You're coming up for the great festivals. Sing this song and sing this. When people rose up against us, they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Over us would have gone the raging waters. Friends, when this happens to you, when you suffer from some event, or something in the culture, or something closer to home, a person, a friend, or a family member, or a neighbor who rejects you, or mocks your faith, or just doesn't understand it, and so there's only so far you can go, and you feel like this deepest part of you is, deep part of you is there that you can't share, God wants us to have confidence that in those moments precisely, he is with us. He comes to our side to defend us. 
And wouldn't it be nice to have this kind of confidence? To have confidence that when you're suffering, when you're feeling alone, when you're feeling even like your faith is maybe silly or something you're not sure of anymore or whatever because people are mocking all the time, it doesn't make, it doesn't make sense anymore. To have the confidence that right then God is with you at your side, even more profoundly sometimes than when you're not suffering. It's hard to have this kind of confidence, isn't it? To have confidence that God is with us. I said this last week in some ways, but, you know, on the intellectual side of things, we have moved through postmodernism and Postmodernism did a good job of disabusing all of us of any claims to truth with a capital T or to being on the right side of things. The understanding of intersectionality has pointed out my privilege and any truth claims I make as possibly just power moves. And then within the church, a focus on, a primary focus on sin and the wily nature of my heart sometimes makes us too ashamed to claim God for ourselves. Plus, frankly, you look around at some other Christians, again, just from the surface or from the media, so that's not fair to all of them, but so many of them seem so certain, right? So certain that they seem almost arrogant with their faith. They don't seem to have any questions at all. They just know that they're on the right side, and they're going to see their enemies pay. And so it can seem dangerous or naive to have this kind of confidence, especially When you just look at your personal circumstances and you say, maybe I'm broke, my relationships didn't work out the way I wanted, I keep failing morally, seeing what the pandemic did to my city and to my church, to my community. And then there's just the fact that culturally we have almost no incentive to be believers anymore. And I'm speaking particularly to New Yorkers. There are places in this country where you can go and it's a really good spot to network and it's socially acceptable to be there. And You know, a lot of people show up on Sunday and do their thing. But here, really, I mean, there's not that much incentive for you to spend your Sunday this way. Like, no other incentive. It's not going to help you financially to be sacrificial and with your money. It's not going to help you with your to-do list to give your time and your talents to serving others here. There's almost no cultural reward in New York City for sacrificing all these things to a local congregation. And we live at a time where the former sort of wild and weird blend of American Christianities seem to be on the decline. And so our neighbors view Christianity with suspicion, sometimes with hostility. But in my experience, actually, it's less that. I don't feel persecuted in New York City at all. I feel like it's a really lovely place to be a Christian and we're all around diverse people and so people just take it at face value. But it can really drain on you just like this heat is sort of just stifling and oppressive and doesn't move year after year to realize most people just don't seem to be that interested in your Jesus. They're just not interested. They're fine without him. And this can begin to wear you down. Some Christians, of course, become embittered and resentful and mean and want to resort to power plays against their enemies. They get angry just because Hollywood puts something in a movie they don't have to watch that they don't agree with. And I want to say that this is the problem, is that many of us are prone to get down on ourselves when we find ourselves in these situations. We're prone to think something's wrong with me or my faith. 
something's wrong with this kind of Christianity, maybe God is not with us. If there is one, maybe he doesn't seem to be with us. But this psalm is here to tell you that we are to be people with proper confidence, that he is on our side to help us when we suffer, and that there really are enemies. And so it says, take this on your lips. Take this on your lips. Let Israel now say, he reminds them, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel, let everyone who's coming up to the pilgrimage from all of your small towns and your tribes and your villages, take this on your lips and let us all together say, if the Lord had not been on our side when our enemies came against us. And this isn't just referring to Israel's enemies. It uses the word humankind here. That's what it means. The word is for all humanity. So it's this idea of trusting in God versus trusting what we say, trusting in man, trusting in the world, trusting in human beings. Pilgrims, when they find themselves going up towards pilgrimage, are meant to take upon their lips, whether for themselves or with all the other pilgrims and on behalf of the other pilgrims, when they rose up against us, when we started turning to human beings for the answer and it didn't go well, let us now say, man, if the Lord hadn't been on our side, we would have been swept away. And there's a couple pictures here. There's a picture like of an enemy that's like a dragon and everyone knows dragons are scary and terrifying. There's another image here of what happens in the water courses of the desert. And you have a spring rain comes in. All of a sudden there's floods that happen. You could find yourself swept away suddenly. And they're told that you will have enemies. You will have hardships. You will experience rejection. You will perhaps question your faith. When that happens, let Israel now say, Man, if God hadn't been on our side, we would have been swept away by all of our troubles. We would have been destroyed by our worries and those against us. See, when people in the world have been oppressed, the options before them usually are to despair or to get revenge. Seems that the way of faith is perseverance that leads to confidence, that leads somehow even to joy. That this is the narrow way of pilgrimage, not the path on the right to despair, the path on the left over here to revenge, but instead the narrow way of pilgrimage. And that this way will lead to confidence in God's faithful presence and support of us. That he will come and help when the dragon is there, or when the floods come that he will keep us and rescue us out of our difficulties. In Romans 5, Paul, who we mentioned earlier, says this. He's talking about the life of faith, and he says, look, we've been justified, we've been made right, we've been declared perfect by God through Jesus. And so we have shalom with God now through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access into a grace, a favor, which is what we stand in today. And so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, this thing waiting for us up there. We rejoice in this. And I want you to hear this. This is where it, the rubber really actually meets the road for us. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why do we rejoice in our sufferings? Think about all the reactions in the world that people have when there are oppressors, when they are hurt, when something happens, and then they get put in power. Nine times out of ten, they flip the script, 
and they turn into the dictators themselves. Despair or revenge? How is it that people can experience suffering and rejoice in their sufferings? Paul tells you, because we know that suffering, the very nature of it, if we keep walking down the path of the pilgrimage, the narrow path, suffering produces in us endurance. Endurance produces in us character, strong, unbendable. And that very character produces hope. And hope will never put us to shame. Our enemies are trying to put us to shame. Sometimes we'd like to get in charge and shame our enemies, but hope is the thing that won't actually not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. If we will allow suffering to do its work, we can rejoice in our suffering knowing it produces endurance and then character, and character produces hope, and hope will never put us or anyone to shame. It's how God pours out his love into our hearts. And so it leads to confidence in God's support even when we're suffering. He says, everyone say this, if the Lord hadn't been on our side, say it with me, if the Lord had not been on our side, and then at the end he says, blessed be the Lord. He didn't give us his prey of their teeth. We escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare, in fact, has been broken. We've escaped. And now it's not just say it anymore. Just try to believe it. He says declaratively at the end, our help is in the name of the Lord. This same Lord who made heaven and earth. Do you see this confidence? Even in the suffering, on our scary path of life sometimes, walking towards the city of Shalom, we can have confidence And I want to just draw out a couple of applications from this. One is that we gain confidence collectively. This will be harder and harder for you to do as a Lone Ranger Christian. We were not designed that way anyways, but I just give you a warning. There is almost no possibility of you living this life as a Lone Ranger, individualist Christian, making up your own mind about things without a strong community and keeping your faith when there are less and less cultural incentives to do it. We need one another. And that's why it says, let everyone come to the pilgrimage as you're coming up from your tribes and your villages. Let us all say this together. And collectively, we give confidence to one another. See, yeah, he did. I don't know, my week was pretty normal. I didn't feel persecuted at all. I just went to work. I just did this. But now I'm walking up to the assembly and I see that that person over here who has been persecuted or this person did receive this kind of tough message from their family or this person's struggling and wondering if God loves them. Let's all say this together. The Lord is on our side. And collectively we gain confidence together. I want you to hear some statistics. This is true, facts, okay? Every day, 15 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Today, 15 Christians worldwide will be killed because of their faith. Directly because of their Christianity, they will be murdered. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked or forcibly closed by a government. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned and another five are abducted. More than 124,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith in the last year, and almost 15,000 became refugees. This is all from an organization called Open Doors Annual World Watch List. 
by the way, who are known for very conservative estimates of these numbers. A lot of other groups put that at around 100,000 martyrdoms a year. Their top 10 list of countries that is the most dangerous to be Christians include North Korea, Afghanistan, Nigeria, and India. Not the United States. And frankly, you're not being persecuted if you don't like what Disney puts on a cartoon. You're not being persecuted. This is real persecution, and these are your brothers and sisters. I could go on and on with the statistics, but I think you get the idea. It says something like 309 million Christians live in places today with very high or extreme levels of persecution. Collectively, when we come to church, this is part of what we're doing. I know sometimes you just want a nice message to get through the comfort of this, to get through the hard things this week. And I do want to comfort you with this psalm. But also what we're doing is having our eyes raised up to something higher. And if we're going to have shalom, it means that all of our brothers and sisters need shalom. And they're coming from places to church each week where they are under fear of death for their faith. And that we want to come and take their words upon our lips to say together, let Israel all now say, the Lord is on our side. The Lord will help. The Lord will pull you out of the flood. He will save you from the dragon's teeth and take you out of the snare. The apostle Paul said, in my sufferings, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's body, the church. That their sufferings are our sufferings. Our sufferings are the church's sufferings. We belong one to another. And so we pray for them each week in the prayers of the people. We're reminded of all the suffering in the world, of those who feel left out, even here. Yes, we're not under physical uh, threat. But as I've said, this climate of just disinterest and sort of no help when you suffer and thin community, we come together to remind that we are part of this collective body of Christ and we are meant to fill up one another's sufferings, to take them on ourselves, to exercise compassion, to suffer with and for, to realize we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And so these are my three applications. I have like a little paragraph for each one and then we'll stop. Come together to walk with and toward our suffering brothers and sisters. We should be known not as people who have martyr complexes, you know? I didn't like that advertising thing. I'm going to boycott that company. Oh, you know, so bad. I don't like this law. I'm going to go use some electoral politics and find a strong man or a strong woman to make sure everyone has to obey my morals. That is not what Christians should be known for. They should be known for solidarity with the suffering. Solidarity with the suffering. Where are people hurting? That's where we're going. Pilgrimage meant that they were all walking up toward God and it meant they were walking toward one another. One tribe might be flourishing that year in its faithfulness and its ability to live out the Torah. Another might be given over to unjust rulers, local leaders, and lots and lots of worshiping of Asherah and Baal at the high places. But once you set your sights on the God who is Shalom and you walk away from your homeland toward this God, you become less settled in either place. You become a pilgrim walking toward the great peaceable throng to gather and to share and to celebrate and to exercise solidarity with those who suffer. Is this what we're known for? In New York City, in the year of our Lord 2023, whatever levels of disinterest or persecution are we known for solidarity with the suffering? And then second, do we believe that we are destined for glory? We are destined for healing We are destined for shalom. This is where we're going, but the way to victory, 
The way to glory is through suffering and service. That the path to shalom for us always passes underneath the cross. Jesus himself, who was confident on that cross, bearing the suffering and the weight and the sin of the world in his flesh, on that cross, he said, Lord, it is finished, and into your hands I commend my spirit. He was confident that he was with the Lord, and the Lord was with him in his darkest hour. That we have to believe that our path to shalom will pass through that cross. It will pass through Jesus. And our glory, our victory, our cultural influence, if you want, will only happen through suffering and service decade after decade, century after century. The Roman Empire didn't become Christian because they finally got a big enough army to make everyone obey. It happened because decade after decade, they still took care of babies when they were left out to the exposure to die. They went around feeding people. They took orphans and widows in. They gave up their possessions to share money for the poor. And they met week after week for worship in homes and in small places, even as they were persecuted and scattered and suffered and killed. And are we known then as those who aren't necessarily whiny and petty and seeking reward or power through worldly means like money or politics or a cultural splash, but instead those who are busy practicing compassion and sacrificial service? Do we understand that this is our glory? And this is the way that we find God dwelling with us at our side. And lastly, I think, I've mentioned this before, but it's been a long time. I love to think about embracing the opportunities before us as we more and more become a minority faith in New York City, but also in America. To look around at what minority churches have done and have always done and the kind of fruit, the way that they do and don't interact with the culture and the kind of fruit that has accrued to them through their endurance and their character and their hope. I think most specifically of the African-American church. What can we learn from the African-American church who both because of their race and faith have been systematically persecuted for centuries? Think of the black church and its steadfast joy, its faith and its fairness, its hope, its undefeated spirit, its confidence in God's presence It's creativity and beauty that it has contributed to the global church. And this happened through suffering. Now, we don't want to ask for suffering. We're not asking and say, pick me, pick me. But suffering comes to us all. What will we do with it when it finds us? Will we be able to say, our God is our help? Our God is with us. In 2015, a white supremacist named Dylan Roof walked into a Bible study had killed nine black churchgoers at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. I have two anecdotes from the follow-up. One is a parishioner there named Chris Singleton. He lost his mother, Sharonda Singleton, in the shooting. He's 18 years old, and he found himself with a newfound responsibility of caring for his younger siblings, and it transformed him into an adult instantly. And though his mother didn't live to see him eventually become a father and a husband, The practice of forgiveness rooted in his faith kept him going, he says. He recalls a powerful quote he read from author Lewis Smedes. Here's the quote. To forgive is to set a prisoner free, 
and discover that the prisoner was you. Chris Singleton goes on to say, I believe so many people view forgiveness as letting the other person off the hook. We think we're letting the other person off the hook by forgiving them, when in actuality, we are just freeing ourselves from that constant feeling of revenge. Shortly after this tragedy, there was an event, and a lot of people were there, of course, and they invited the poet laureate of South Carolina, whose name is Marjorie Wentworth, to come and write and read a poem for the victims and for the survivors at this event to commemorate what had happened. Wentworth began to reflect on a quote. The quote was, only love can conquer hate. This was one of the favorite quotes of one of the nine church members who had lost their lives in the shooting. And when she was thinking about this quote, the words began to flow. And so at the event, she read this poem. I want you to hear in here something like what we do when we sing Psalm 124 in our pilgrimage together. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel now say, the Lord is on our side. She wrote this. Let us gather and be silent together like stones glittering in sunlight. So bright it hurts our eyes, emptied of tears and searching the sky for answers. Let us be strangers together as we gather in circles wherever we need to stand, hand in hand, and sing hymns to the heavens and pray to the fallen and speak their names. Clementa, Cynthia, Taiwanza, Ethel, Sharonda, Daniel, Myra, Susie, and Depayne. They are not alone. As bells and the spires call across the wounded Charleston sky, we close our eyes and listen to the same stillness ringing in our hearts, holding on to one another, like brothers, like sisters, because we know that wherever there is love, there is God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.